Hi, I'm Renee. And I'm Renee. And this is Listen <laughs> to Me Podcast, where you get all the greatest and unqualified advice from qualified creatives. Basically, Renee goes through it so that you can put your skills to work building the writing community you want to see in the world. Renee. Renee. <laughs> I love that. I don't hear my name enough, and it really is an ego trip. Renee, Renee, <laughs> Renee, Renee. Oh my God. Speaking of which, I just watched the Dolly Parton documentary on Netflix and it was so good. Yeah. Is it is an institution. Listen, your life was forever changed if you go to the Dolly Parton Dixie Stampede. <laughs> I've been personally, I've eaten turkey with my bare hands. Oh my gosh. What an experience. Yeah. I saw the South and the North fighting <laughs> for freedom. God. It was a legit thing. They, There's a civil war reenactment is what you're saying. In like a southern interpretation of what you would expect like medieval times to be. Oh, well, hence the turkey leg. There was two teams dressed yeah. in red and blue and they would like race on ostriches or like pig Oh, runs. that's not the civil war at all. <laughs> like, you know, the uniforms were red and blue, right? <laughs> no, but that's what she said. Like she literally was oh my like- God. At the end, like- cause they Who, had a, Dolly? Yes. Okay, so she listen. She was listen. there? So this is what they do. So the, it's like a, a dinner and a show and the show is the yeah. North versus the South and they fight, but they fight through like acrobatics, dancing and tricks and whatever. Oh, okay. And then at the end- she comes out on a video screen and it comes down from the ceiling and she goes, now, whether you're from the North and she points like to the North's <laughs> half or the South and she points to the South, we are all Americans. And it's this whole thing. And then like the American national anthem comes on and then like inside the stadium, fireworks are going off. It was like wild. Oh my God. And I feel like I lived the experience now and I don't ever have to go. You don't have to go. No, and <laughs> you brought we, I, Dolly Land to me. It was so funny because we we're sitting there eating. I was, I was with my family. Family, and my aunt leans forward and she goes, this is why everyone hates America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this. This yeah, specifically, yeah. just this. Yeah. Just the one thing. Okay. OMG. How are you, darling? I'm good. I'm really good. I spent uh, most of today writing, which is really nice because mm -hmm. I'm unemployed. So I'm doing that now. Well, I mean, it's... Is that how you're going to call it? I don't know how I should call it. I am temporarily out of the workforce. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah? Yes, I would say. I don't think you're unemployed. I think you're just redirecting. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm recalibrating like the GPS lady. Boop, 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 boop. Recalibrating. <laughs> now recording. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I spent the weekend uh, reading a lot as well. And one of the books that I read is our guest, Lisa Murphy Lamb's book, Jesus on the Dashboard. And I really, 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 really liked it a lot. Although it made me laugh because there was a lot of stuff about Christianity in it. Because mm -hmm. uh, it's told from the point of view of like a teenage girl in the 80s who she lives with her dad. And her mom left the family when she was younger. And she sort of like, experiences a coming of age over the summer that has to do it's like kicked off by her mom kind of converting to Christianity and then like coming back to her town Roots. so she has to kind of confront that oh 
not her roots sorry have to smack my mic once per episode it's in the contract (laughs) anyway um so yeah I'm really excited and I have this little blurb here that I want to read for Lisa because she has done so many things and I knew that I would not remember if I didn't write it down. So today we're talking to Lisa Murphy-Lamb. As I said before, she is the author of the young adult novel, Jesus on the Dashboard. She is an acquisitions editor for Stonehouse Publishing, which is a small press in Alberta. And she is the founder of the Loft on 8th Micropress and New Forum magazine. And she is the director of Loft 112, which is an inclusive, creative, collaborative workspace in Calgary for writers. Uh, So she has done so much. (laughs) I kind of want to be her when I grow up. (laughs) I feel like. When I grow up. And yeah, I'm just, I can't wait to kind of pick her brain about how she did her schooling and education. And now she's come like all the way around to being sort of like a mainstay in the writing community in Alberta and Southern Alberta. So, well, maybe this interview is coming at the right time, you know, now that you're recalibrating <laughs> with your work situation. Yes. Yeah. Then, of course. You know, it'll maybe put a fire in the right pan. Uh, yeah, I like that expression. That's a good one. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I was like, <laughs> Maybe it'll grease the hog shoot the way mama intended. Is that an expression? Whether you're from the north or the <laughs> south, <laughs> we all know how to grease our pigs. <laughs> okay, let's go talk to Lisa. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Are you dying of this heat wave? Is it hot? Yeah. Yeah, it's very hot. Yep. Hello. Edmonton too. Hello. Now, I don't have headphones. I apologize. I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) I had some and then from my son and then he's on a podcast tonight. So he took him back. What? What podcast is he on? I forget which one he's on. Not as good as ours is what you're no. saying. Thanks, no. Lisa. Not nearly as good. <laughs> Could you imagine if the podcast was actually called I Forget? Yeah. <laughs> My mom <Memorable>. forgets. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Renee. Memorable. <laughs> Oh, well, Lisa, I just want to thank you for coming on Listen to Me to talk to us tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for being interested in yeah. me, in what I do, and in, in what the couple of uh, endeavors that I'm involved with are doing. Oh, just a couple. Just a couple. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, we're going to start by letting you tell our listeners a little bit about your career, kind of how it started in education and where your involvement with the writing community began. So like introduce yourself, tell us about yourself. Okay, so I started off at the University of Calgary, thought I was going to be a teacher um, and was a teacher for a while. I did a B.Ed. in elementary education, but was really interested on how to make sure that every child in the classroom needs were met. I researched a little bit and ended up at McGill um, and did my MED in inclusive education. I really wanted to look at how to build welcoming classrooms for all learners um, that were in the same space. I did that, came back to Calgary and worked, taught in very inclusive multi-age classrooms for a couple of years. 
and then ended up moving to London um, while pregnant with uh, my first son. And so I... London, UK or London, Ontario? Oh yeah, London, UK. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And so I wanted to take that time to explore a couple of things that I had to teach that I had never experienced myself. And one of them was the writing process. So I asked my students to go through the writing process where they, you know, draft one and peer editing Mm -hmm. and um, draft two. And, um, and I could see sort of the discomfort and the horror on some of the, my (laughs) students faces having to do that. And so when I was living in near London, England, I decided I would take a course to experience what the writing process was like myself. So I could be more empathetic as a teacher. And that's how I started with writing. And then the community came a little bit later. So then I ended up writing a bit and then ended up in Houston, Texas and joined a organization there called Writers in the Schools. So Houston didn't have a lot of creative learning in the classrooms. I don't want to misrepresent what I'm saying here, but a lot of the teaching is it needs to be tested. It's very standardized. There's a lot of testing. And so anything creative, like reading and writing, was sort of taken out of the curriculum. And so Writers in the Schools was this non-for-profit organization that brought writers into the schools and without any kind of beholding to the curriculum, was able to teach poetry and creative writing and literature that didn't have to be tested and didn't have to follow any curricular rules. And they just brought the love of the language into the classroom. So I was very lucky to be part of that project. How did you end up bouncing around the world? Like, explain <laughs> explain that trajectory to me. <laughs> I was married at the time and my then husband's job took us to these places. Great experience, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Absolutely great experiences because the other part of when I was a teacher, I also had to teach art classes and, mm. you know, was not a great art teacher. And so the (laughs) other part of my study was to learn more about art. And so being near London and being in Houston, tremendous art. And Houston also has a really great grassroots art scene. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just the education that I had from being in the places there and and traveling around, I'm a much better educator in, in those two respects now. Well, I was going to say, like, I love that your lens on education is clearly coming from a place of empathy because it is very unnerving. I can't even imagine as a kid, even as an adult, like sharing written work, like stuff that, you know, you're really pulling out of yourself with other people in your peer group is really it's difficult. It takes a lot of like gumption, right? So for you to be like, I see that they're having a hard time. I will also subject myself to this <laughs> just so that I can understand what it's like. I mean, that's that's amazing. So when you started writing, like what was it about it that kind of drew you in and, and kept you going? I didn't expect to get into writing as a writer. My intention was to get into writing as a teacher. Yeah. And then I liked the idea of being able to tell my own story. And I think also I kept writers and actually I do know this. I kept writers as an other. I didn't know that you could know writers at that time when I was a teacher. It was like, oh, those writers, you know, I bring them into the classroom. I bring their stories into the classroom. Yeah. But they are this mythical being that, uh, you know, from afar, this, 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 this magical land. It's not just a haze of stale coffee and cigarettes. It's mystique, really. Yeah. 
And I remember it was, I think it was the very last year I was leaving teaching and I was about to move to England. One of my colleagues, you know, we were taking down our classrooms. I think we were moving classrooms. It's a big deal. We're tired. You know, as elementary school teachers, we have a lot of stuff. And she was sort of just standing in the middle of her classroom with boxes and posters and markers and everything. And she said, sometimes I just want to give this all up and become a writer. And I thought, you can just do that. <laughs> and so that was sort of the very sort of first seed that was like, you can actually like, you know, not anybody can become a writer, obviously, but the possibility is there. And so I entered into writing as a teacher because I wanted to become a better educator, but then something switched. And then it was like, ah, I may not get back into the classroom for a while because I had kids or my first child, and I was going to stay at home, but perhaps I could become a writer and explore it. And now, a few decades later, I now write and I don't do it very often because it's the one thing I do for myself. I love the challenge of it because I don't think that I can do it. I don't think that I have the ability to tell a story and to tell it the story well. And then when I find the time or give myself permission to just forget about everybody and everything else, and I sit down to write, I overcome that challenge and I surprise myself and I'm like, I can write. And so I think that's what draws me in is because it's a fun challenge that so far even though I don't do it very often these days, it draws me in. It's a challenge that I, that has not bested me yet. I love that. I actually, I did like morning pages this morning before I started working on a short story. And something that I wrote down was there's nothing more terrifying or galvanizing than sitting down in front of a blank page. Like it's Mm -hmm. exciting, but it's also like piss your pants scary. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Then it feels good when you're like, okay, all right. I wrote that and it's, pretty good yeah I'm like yeah. that'll do that'll do that'll do <laughs> yeah that'll do that'll do how are you able to use your experience working in education to foster so many initiatives within the creative writing community So that definitely stems from my master's in inclusive education. So when you walk into a classroom and you know that it is a diverse room that you were walking in. Mm -hmm. Um, So I often taught three grades at one time, plus students. So it was multi-aged and there was a smattering, as there is in every classroom, a smattering of kids with learning diversities and needs. Mm -hmm. And so you when your mindset is just just to approach a diverse classroom, you build your environment and your projects and your lessons around that because you have to, you have to cover three grades of curriculum and then you have to build projects and lessons where there is room for an expand, there's room for expansion for those kids who learn quickly and a lot. You have to build curiosity so that people are self-starters and that they can learn. And then you also have to build projects and lessons and activities where those who are just, you know, struggling with the basics can also experience success and learning within it. So 
I've always just approached like, here's what we're going to do, but we're going to, you know, we're going to make use of the fact that we have mentorship because I've taught some of these kids from four, five to six, you know, they've got the confidence in the older ages. So there's built-in mentorship. It's going to celebrate and it's going to become commonplace that um, there's a range of skills. There's a range of entryways into this project. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I did through my training. And now it's just what I love to do. Like, here's an idea mm-hmm. and yeah. um, we're going to throw it out. And what we want is diverse reactions to this project. We want all age ranges. We want all kinds of, we want writing and art. We want people who this is their very first time they're going to put something out into the world. And we want our award winners to come back and we want that mentorship and we want that community. And yeah, so that's kind of what I just keep doing, coming up with these harebrained schemes and then hoping it sticks and it seems to work. Not at all. You have done so, so much. Like what were some of the favorite projects that you've gotten off the ground, like in the Calgary community, especially? Well, I think our, our one of our most surprising ones is when Carrie Phillips Keyser and I first met. She was with Alberta Printmaker. She has since moved to the East Coast, but she was director there and um, she worked with printmakers and I worked with writers and we met and enjoyed each other's as humans. And so we said, let's try to figure out a project that we can bring our two small studios together. So we created something called Printed Word, where 10 of her printmakers, oh, it's raining in Calgary, big storm <laughs> right now. I see Geo, it's not just me. Geo <laughs> reads me every time we get on a call because I immediately start talking about the weather and he's like, what is the deal with you? And I'm like, that's Always. a big event here. <laughs> yeah, it just suddenly just came down. Yeah. Um, it's coming <laughs> sorry about that. Me. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, something, something happened. Yeah. Um, so um, 10 printmakers from their community and, and 10 poets and writers from our community got together. We started with the printed word first. Carrie and I sort of matched them together. We had a big meeting and uh, the artists responded to the printed word and made these astounding art books that incorporated the text, some of the text or all of the text and printmaking in these books. And books are, it's sort of a loose interpretation of the idea of work. They weren't all bound books. Yeah, Um, kind of like zines almost? No, no, they are, no, they're phenomenal. They are objects of art, art objects. They're sculptures. They're, um, and so, you know, we had this great, we got a little bit of funding. We were successful. We got a little bit of funding. We had an art show. It was well attended. We did talks. They were well attended. And then philanthropist came in and saw what we did and she loved it so much. She bought all the books and they now have a permanent display at the new central library downtown. Oh, that's amazing. Um, Yeah. So that was one that was just a great fun activity that took two um, small studio spaces and introduced Uh, membership to each other. I have a new appreciation for printmaking. And then it just blew up into this permanent collection in this beautiful library. Mm -hmm. And then we did a year long talk series at the library. That one was very exciting to have happen. And then another one is I was 
the loft was gifted an old card catalog. Oh, I seem to be talking about libraries, you know, the card catalogs where you used to look up books and the yep. card catalogs. And we have turned it over and turned it into a small gallery. And so we're in our second exhibit. So we do a call for artists and writers who then take um, a drawer home and they curate the drawer and mm. then they bring them back. And so again, just phenomenal. So you, the, the viewer gets to come and sit in front of this card catalog. It's like a cabinet of curiosities because you open up these drawers and you <laughs> don't know what's inside. And there's 30 of them. Yeah. And they range from, they all contain stories of some sort. And some of them are visual representations in terms of art and others have actual stories in them. There's music, there's light, there's pop-up. And uh, that's a really phenomenal one. And it's it's really great as the sort of the the director who has to hang out at the loft when it's opened to be able to sit and observe people experiencing this small gallery because just the reactions and the emotion with them. That is so cool. The way you're describing this, it sounds like something out of Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah. And so funny that you say that because that's how I got the card catalog is we had a Harry Potter event in the space and Harry Braun, who is a librarian and a could be, well, I don't know. It's hard to know. She loves Harry Potter very, very much. <laughs> Um, is a huge fan and she brought it in and so that kids could open it up and there were chocolate wands that she made that were inside each drawer so the kids got to come in and open the drawer and pull out their chocolate wand and as part of the experience that is so cute i knew it yeah (laughs) i'm psychic (laughs) (laughs) yep so that there were chocolate wands in there and that's how it ended up at loft 112 and it never left I need to go there when I'm in Calgary next, yes. which is never, but yeah. uh, it'll happen. It's going to happen. And then hopefully we'll be opened and doing even more. But right now we have the Box Stories Gallery. And then we also have this province-wide exquisite corpse game that's happened. Again, we did a call out for participation. We had 96 people participate. And do you know the exquisite corpse game? No. Okay, so it's a surrealist game. It was played by the surrealist artists. And you take a piece of paper and you fold it into thirds. And somebody starts Mm. and, you know, they can do a head. And then you only see this part of it, just a small part of it. And you pass it on to the next person. Person who then does the middle and then the bottom part and then you open it up and you see the three artist con- contributions to the whole cadaver or corpse and you can also do it with writing you can do one line at a time and then fold it over and pass it to somebody else I was laughing because uh, we did not know that that's what it was called but Gio and I have known each other since we were five and when we were in high school we literally would do that with each other where we would ah. Yeah, we would fold a page into fifths usually and then write three sentences, leave the last sentence exposed and then pass it to our friend. (laughs) As you're describing this, I'm like, we've, oh, I I know this game. I still have some of them in my basement. (laughs) So that's what happened across Alberta. And then they all came over to the loft and we framed them. And now there's the only one group didn't complete, which I have to say is amazing considering we have 96 begin. And now they're all hanging at the loft and they're gorgeous and you can see them at on Instagram we're posting one a day if I dm you when I'm in Calgary Lisa will you give me a tour of the loft 112 oh absolutely (laughs) yeah absolutely that would be incredible okay we are doing that it is a date we will figure it out 
want to talk about Jesus on the dashboard because I read it and I loved it. I literally read it in like one day. My dog was like, what are you doing? I've never <laughs> seen you hold a paper book for that long. Like, that's not your phone. And I just <laughs> like... Gemma was so compelling to me as a teen protagonist because I think I've just read so much contemporary YA where like we see these like female characters who are like clumsy but like really smart and shy but beloved by everyone and Gemma was like the antithesis of that like she was so in her own world and I was like this reminds me of being a teenager because everything that happened to me when I was a teenager felt like the biggest thing and everybody else's problems were petty compared to mine. So I would love for you to talk about your experience writing Jesus on the dashboard and just, yeah, just take us through why you wanted to write the story and, and what it means to you. Well, I did not know this was the story I was going to write. Okay. Um, yeah, that happens. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wrote the story while I was taking Aretha Van Herc's full novel manuscript course at the University of Calgary. As typical for me, I leave things until the last minute. So <laughs> it was a portfolio submission. I had taken a couple of courses beforehand and you, you had to submit, you didn't just have to submit, you had to submit some previous writing, fill out a questionnaire, and that's how you went. I assumed that's what happened with the manuscript course. So I was running Wordsworth Youth Writing Residency at the time. And uh, so lots of kids, instructors, full-blown writing. And I thought, well, I'll just get my portfolio together. And, and, you know, I got like a week and I have to get it off. Oh, no. You had to have the first 50 pages of your novel to submit, of which I had not even entertained the thought of what I was going to write. I thought that's what the course was for. Oh, my God. Also, I love Aretha. I met her at the conference this year, and she is just hilarious and amazing. Yes, Yes, she is so great. I got in, Mm -hmm. and that's how the novel got written, is because I was in Aretha's (laughs) class. Yeah. And so I had to come up with 50 pages in a week while I was running this residency. So it just happened to be that there was a prompt that day at the camp that somebody said, write something about your youth. It must have been something like that, although they were all kids there. I don't know what their youth was. Um, <laughs> when you were 11. <laughs> yeah, there, but there was that prompt. And I had borrowed a book from one of the staff that was there, one of the creative, um, Mark Lynch. He had Religion for Atheists. And yeah, so I, yeah I that's asked, referenced in the book. Yeah. Yes. And so those two just sort of, they collided that same moment where I found out I had to write the first 50 pages. <laughs> and so my memory from my youth was visiting my very religious cousin and her family in Kelowna. And they were very religious. They had all sorts of like very religious rules. And she took me roller skating and I was 12 and we went roller skating one afternoon. And some guy asked me to roller skate, slow dance, roller skate, you know, in Kelowna when you're 12. Yeah. Yes. And he had his hands all over me and um, he was asking me questions and he asked me how old I was. So I told him I was 12 of which his hands then went up off my ass to my back. God, I would (laughs) hope so. And my cousin after said, why did you tell him your age? You always lie about your age. How will you ever get a boyfriend if you tell them that you're 12? 
And so that became the story of Gemma going and visiting her cousin in Springbank and having all these religious roles. That was the only kernel and then like, and then reading the religion for atheists. So I just wanted Gemma to go to church and then having to get out of herself and then have to navigate this world that doesn't seem to have the right rules that don't make that don't make sense. But in the end, you know, just realizing that there people are just people and someone's got her back. And yeah, but yeah. I did not know that that was the story I was going to tell. I was forced to tell that story because I had to write 50 pages. <laughs> Thank you, Aretha. Van <laughs> but then the challenge was to write that story and it was a yeah. fantastic challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say as somebody who was raised really religious, you nailed it. Like I was feeling so much kind of sympathy for Penelope. Um, I was not a wild child as a teenager. It took me a little bit like later to, to kind of like break out of that mold, so to speak. But I really did sympathize with Penelope. That's the cousin character that Gemma goes to stay with who's like in the religious family. And she's got this amazing way of like reconciling her cognitive dissonance where she's like yes I am a firm believer in God and the church's tenets but I am also slutty and I like it like it's, it's great <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and I and I appreciate that comment because I didn't want it to be a comment like yeah I didn't want it uh, on religion I just wanted Gemma to go to church and <laughs> yeah. um you know, I didn't want to say church was good or church was bad. I just wanted her to experience, you know, youth group. And I always had a step, a foot in and out of church. So I hope that I do. I had done a good job, but I've got a lot of good feedback where people are like, yeah, that was my church experience too. So I'm happy to hear that. Yes. I also went to youth group and I have to say, and this is just my own biases talking, there was not enough vitriol against the church. Like for me to feel like you had grown up religious or like not religious. Do you know what I mean? There really wasn't like a significant amount of endorsement or denouncement of it, but I think it fits so perfectly because the church is sort of to so many people a symbol of community and mm. such a huge theme in the book is Gemma's alienation from her peers from her family even from her or her own self right like she struggles kind of with the eating disorder and also not really you can kind of see how not having a mother figure in her life has kind of um removed a compass point for her almost where she's like I don't know who I am without being able to to frame that in relation to like who my mom is. Yes. You know what I mean? And it, yeah, I just felt like it, it fits so well. Yeah. It was really, really enjoyable to read. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you read it and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it was great. How did you get involved with Stonehouse Publishing? I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. And what's it like on the other side as, as an acquisitions editor? Well, not quite the acquisitions editor, although there are really only two of us um, who work sort of day to day. So yeah, I'm now part of the acquisitions editing, which I wanted to be because I, I like to be it. So how did I got involved was they published uh, Jesus on the dashboard. So I met with them through, yeah, I met wet through them and they published at that time. It was Netta Johnson and Julie Eriks. And uh, so I submitted, they published my book and, you know, we got to know each other as a small publishing house and an author. And then Julie went back to school and she didn't have the same same time to commit to the publishing house. So Netta asked me if I would join. And so we had decided at that time that we would kind of divide it into she would do all the pre 
up until the book was published. And then I would look after the post just to make sure because we were a small publishing house, one of the perks of being with a small publishing house is that you have a relationship between the authors and the publishing house. And, mm-hmm. but when there's only two people working, it can be really hard mm-hmm. to get everything done. Cause there's a lot of things to do when you run a publishing house. So I was going to look after and make sure that the, once the book got published, that the author still felt valued. Yeah. Um, and she was going to look after the pre, but we're now doing both work. that's a lot are you hiring uh i'm recently laid off i will come work for you well if you like working for no money you are (laughs) well you have to talk to it is yeah it's um it's kind of a volunteer position (laughs) as most small presses and lit mags are yeah yeah, for sure so hopefully soon i think um see when netta and julie start at the press they started it from scratch, which oh, is an unusual way to start a press. Often you acquire a press that's already had years of titles and, you know, they've done the work and the momentum, but not so for Julie and Netta. They just thought, thought they'd start from scratch. So, you know, I think the hard work is, is we're getting to the point where um, I believe good things are going to happen in the, the millions of dollars that publishing brings in any day now, any day. <laughs> I was going to ask you, can you talk about kind of what's next on the docket for Stonehouse? Yeah, well, like the titles. So we're just going to keep publishing. When they first started, they had two publishing. They had one in the fall and one in the spring. I don't know how they did it. Um, And then they went to just the fall. But with the pandemic um, and not being able to get out in person and promote the books and do readings and that sort of thing, we are pushing to spring of 2022. And we have four titles that are coming out. Um, of course, we're very excited about them. We have Anthony Bedulka, who this is, I think, will be his 12th novel. He is oh, wow. um, quite prolific and it's going to beautiful. It takes place in the Saskatchewan prairies in a small town, but it starts off in Toronto. I want to make sure it's, it's Toronto. It's a murder mystery. However, it is a murder mystery, but the town and the people and the relationship of the two that come from the big city to the small town is so beautiful, so heartwarming. Jake is the main character and it was his husband that died and he goes with his neighbor. And so just coming, you know, these big city guys coming to the small town. It's beautiful. Anyways, going to beautiful is one. We have another one that uh, Joanne Jackson, she had written a book for us already called The Wheaton. And it was the story about uh, the senior center. Um, and she has a second book coming out called the, the Snake in the Raspberry Patch. It is also a murder mystery, also set in a small Saskatchewan town. And it's beautiful. It focuses on this one family, you know, with some tragedy, but just so beautifully written. Letters to Singapore by Kelly Carr. This is a story that takes place through letters between Singapore and the University of Calgary. The young protagonist escapes to U of C in the 80s to go to school after escaping an arranged marriage. Practically on the altar, she was at her engagement party and uh, things go awry. And so she gets a chance to come to University of Calgary to study literature And it's a series of letters between her mother, her sister, and her two best friends. And so while she's learning um, literature and how to navigate the Calgary landscape, there's also this education that's happening between her mother and tradition 
and then her and her sister and expectations and her friends and expectations while they all navigate this idea of um, how to be a woman in Singapore and how to be a wife and what happens if you don't want to play those roles. So it takes place in the 80s in Calgary and it's funny and heartwarming and I think it's going to speak to a lot of people. I'm probably, am I talking too much about these no, books? Not at all. I'm like, <laughs> all right, adding these to my to-read list. Excellent. <laughs> And uh, the last one is Cashmere Comes from Goats. It's by S. Portico Bowman. And this one I read a while ago, but it's between it's a dentist and a man that she once loved, perhaps still does. And he finds out that he had a son many years ago in France, who's now living in France. So the two of them head to France on sort of a reluctant trip, reluctant for her to go with this man that she loves and him reluctant to go and find the son that he had and didn't know about. But they end up in France with the son's mom and um, and her new life and his new life and this relationship. Plus, there's an ailing father back in Canada. So it's a sort of a heartwarming story. I'm so struck by sort of like, how much diversity there is on Stonehouse Publishing's roster, but it seems like there's a common thread connecting all the novels. And that's about kind of that, like really interpersonal, emotional, like how do we relate to each other as people and what happens kind of when we're forced into these extraordinary circumstances and, you know, like what is the impact for the people that we love? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think, cause it's interesting because Netta and I read, like we, we get this year, we had about 300 submissions wow. and Netta and I do have quite different tastes in books. So when we narrow it down, we have our discussions, but I think that is the core of what draws the final titles that um, when we have to make the final decisions on the short list and then make it a shorter, short list, it is that that's what draws us together. Because we do have such fast, we do have different tastes and and what makes a a good novel sort of as the whole package, but that is the core of what nails it in the end that we both agree on. So what's the process like? Is there like a call for submission that we're, okay, yeah. Yeah, we do a call for submission and then we ask for the first 30 pages on, like actually sent to us on paper because that just allows us to read it wherever we want to. Mm -hmm. You know, we can read it in a park, we can read it at a bar, we can read it on the C train or, or wherever. Then if we are interested, then we get the full manuscript, but we get it on the computer. And is it exclusively Canadian? Are they Canadian writers? No, we printed our our first American writer last year. We were super excited about it too on two levels. One, it's a fantastic book, Censorettes. And two, we thought we were going to go to a book launch in New York City. Um, (laughs) Then that didn't happen. Um, Yeah, but we, we branched out to the US and it was because it was such a good, it is such a good story that we had it on the back burner and then we kept reading other submissions, but we kept saying, but yeah, there's that one. So Censorettes by Elizabeth Bales Frank is the story of um, the women who went to Bermuda to intersect any coded letters that were being sent during the war. They were there because of their intelligence and their ability to read languages and look for anything that looked awry so that they could Mm -hmm. detect any codes that were being sent. Also a bit of a murder mystery too. (laughs) The books are like the murder mysteries are not ever the forefront. Like you said, they're murder mysteries, but they're still character driven. And then someone just happens to get offed, you know, in the background. 
those are the ones that I want to read. I just read a murder mystery novel that the murder mystery was like the central piece of the novel. And I didn't like it because I didn't find the characters to be engaging. Like I yeah, didn't care plot driven. It was very plot driven and it was yeah. very much like, oh, can you guess who it might be? Like, here are all these clues, but you'll never guess. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I did actually figure it out because the weirdest thing, it was because the author didn't describe any of the other characters clothing except for the murderer and I was like either this person either she's never seen a late 90s punk or this person is the murderer oh <laughs> like, interesting yeah and yeah. she was in fact the murderer but yeah, yeah I'm with you on that one <laughs> I I don't mind a murder mystery as long as I can fall in love with the characters yeah um when I was reading going to beautiful I fell in love with the characters and the crisp winter setting and then I was like oh yeah there's that murder. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're there because of this murder. <laughs> and I like that, those kind of books. It's like, oh, yeah, there's that murder. But yeah. I've fallen in love with the characters. Oh, totally. You're just like yeah. immersed in the setting. Yeah. So what was starting New Form Meg and your experience of publishing it like? And how is it different or related to what you do at Stonehouse currently? So it's similar in many respects. It's the, I mean, ultimately working for both Stonehouse and then starting up New Forum, it's the joy of getting author stories out into the world. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's really that's what is the underlying reason for doing both. You know, it's just fantastic to be able to read stories and then get them out into the world. Every, you know, I remember when that happened to me and and I'm thankful for that. And so that is the common thread between the two. And the differences is with Stonehouse, we only do novels. With New Forum, we do um, short stories, poetry, nonfiction, creative nonfiction, art, photography. And so it's an opportunity to expand. A new Forum is specifically Calgary. I mean, both places we really want, I mean, Alberta, sorry. And then of course, both, we really want to champion the underrepresented voices. And we want to give space and opportunity for stories that need to be amplified that, that haven't been amplified in the past. I mean, we're both aiming for that. Both are not financially generative projects. And yeah, it's just for the love of story and the love mm-hmm. of supporting writers and offering an opportunity and creating. And I think they're also both really beautiful products. So I think New Form is a beautiful magazine. And I think that Stonehouse books are beautiful books. And so happy to be part of both the beauty and getting to meet new writers and celebrate their craft and celebrate the story that they have to tell. So Mm -hmm. very similar and then some slight differences, but I'm happy to be part of being able to promote the stories that writers have to tell. There's something to be said as well to being a facilitator. A doula. Of, yeah. A story doula. <laughs> yeah, literally. Get your business cards written up. No. <laughs> uh, if you need someone to design them for you, let me know. <laughs> okay. No, write that down. Just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, you're helping bring people's projects, babies, whatever, into the world. I mean, that in itself has to be buoying. <laughs> buoying? <laughs> a buoyant, a buoyant moment. Yeah. <laughs> It is. And then we try to do it with as little red tape as possible. Like this is what it is. This is how we're going to do it. And then how I like to work is try to develop relationships along the way Mm -hmm. so that it's not just like, Hey, you you know, thanks for your submission. You're going to be submitted, but really celebrate 
the writer as well as the writing. I think your work, I mean, everything that you do, I think comes from kind of what Gio was saying, which is like the love of the story, but also kind of this community building aspect like you're really and that we need that like I mean I had was never part of a writing community until I came to Alberta and one of the things that I have heard is that like people like writers in the community in Alberta get a different experience than maybe they would like in a larger city because it can be very like insular almost and there are like these silos of like different writing communities but in Alberta it's like you start moving through these channels and people are so supportive and they're so excited and they're so passionate about their craft but they're also really passionate about creating absolutely actions right yeah I hear that all the time, just being in the Loft 112 space. I hear that all the time. People will come, they'll come from other cities and they're like, I did not know, uh, you know, what, how supportive and creative and vibrant the the community is. Um, And I think it's, I think because we're still small enough that we don't have, distance doesn't make us create silos. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think in some of the larger cities, that might be one of the main forces is that, you know, you don't have the time to travel. And so, you know, you create communities where we're still small enough that even driving to Edmonton, you know, to go to a Writers Guild conference one year and coming to Calgary is not a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. We're not, yeah, we're not that populous either, right? So I think it's harder to create these like little silo communities because it's like, there's not that many of us. Let's go find more people. That's a great kind of segue because I wanted to talk about Loft 112. Like what, like how did you come up with this concept? Like, and how did you germinate it into what Loft 112 is now? So when I was married, my husband did really well financially with his work. And so I wanted to be able to give back to the community that's, you know, had provided a good opportunity and a good job to him. And so I wanted to create a space that I had heard from being in the writing community that what was lacking, especially at that time, it's getting better now, but seven and a half years ago, affordable space for writers and artists to be able to have a fundraiser or to be able to put on a show or have a reading was really difficult. And even I found that when I was trying to interview people when I was writing, um, running Wordsworth at the time, you know, I couldn't bring them to my house because that could be creepy at times. <laughs> they are children. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't. Um, and so I would go to coffee shops and spend like eight hours interviewing people at coffee shops and and that's not cheap either. And then, you know, at the end of eight <laughs> hours of drinking coffee, it was, <laughs> and so like, there was just, it was a difficult time to find a space to be able to go and do things like, like I said, it's getting better. So I'd kind of heard that I wanted to give back. I had been researching writers houses that were quite popular, some in the East and the States throughout the UK. Initially, I wanted to open up a writer's house. So I was looking into that building business plans. And I thought, hmm, if I keep it just to writers, it's not going to last long. (laughs) In terms of, So I expanded the idea and called it a literary creative space. And then for the first year, which then extended for much longer, I just said yes to everything. Mm -hmm. So I didn't define what the space was going to be. I let those who wanted to use the space define it. But I knew that I wanted it to be um, accessible and I knew it wanted to be inclusive and friendly and I wanted it to be affordable. And then everything beyond that, 
I let people help me define it. It was definitely a year of yes for the first year, but it essentially is a year of yes now. Although my neighbors have said no to punk bands, tap dancing, (laughs) (laughs) and loud drum sets. (laughs) (laughs) Understandably. Yeah. So there's been some limits put on it. But yeah, so that's how it came to be. I wanted to give back to the community that we had done well with, and I wanted it to be affordable, accessible, central. And and so that's what's happened. So people could use the space as long as they respected the space, the people in it, and the community. So seven and a half years later, here we are. That's amazing. How are you maintaining that sense of community now that everything is closed? Yeah, so we decided, Stacey Wallachow and myself, who we we work together now, we decided to not look at online activities, particularly at the beginning, because there was just a plethora of like amazing opportunities. And we didn't think we could compete on that level. and, And there was enough going on. And so we wanted to come up with projects that still connected the community actually in real time, but safely. So our first project that we created was called Missing You Monday. Mm-hmm. And it was a book that Stacy and I traveled from person to person every Monday. And um, the artist and the writer created a page out of it. And then we passed it on to the next person. So we did a lot of driving. We've now completed three books um, that is just filled with, you know, I just have no idea the art and the talent and yeah. the gifts that Calgary has. And so there are these three beautiful artist books that have like a vellum page and then it has watercolor page and people have just, it's just been beautiful. And we did it as a fundraiser also because there was no money coming in for a year and a half. And so we made it optional. So people not only gave up their talent, but they also paid $10 to be part of it, but that was optional. And so we did that. And we always have a poetry potluck every year. So for two years, we've had, you know, poetry potluck online. And then we did the box stories gallery. So people were able to take the drawer away and create. And then Mm -hmm. it's been sitting since January, just waiting (laughs) to open. So that's been, we have now opened, we limit our tickets. That was the other thing that we did too, because we were able to open for three months in the fall. And so now we just limit our tickets to five people um, per hour. And it's a pre-purchased ticket of $5. And for that, you get to see the art that's on the wall, which right now is the exquisite corpse, Mm -hmm. um, art. You get to see the box stories gallery and you get to see the three books of the missing you Monday that has been traveling since April of last year. We also ran our people's poetry festival as we always have, except for we only did it with five people per hour. So this year people had to choose their poet that they wanted to see and then they bought their ticket again we just do everything for five dollars because it makes people show up if they pay five dollars yeah and then it brings in a little income for us as well because we always pay our poets we always pay our artists and so it's easy to t- put money out so everyone had to choose which artist which poet they wanted to hear and they paid their five dollars and so the poets just spoke to an audience of five. They read to an audience of five, and then we opened it up, and those five people had their open mic at the end. And it was actually really great because, you know, we were distanced in our, in our room, 
and the poet spoke at the front and then they had the open mic but then that group of five became this little family for that hour because they were really kind to each other and they were really supportive of their open mic and we did that with we had a two-night opening because we always pair poetry and, and art Mm-hmm. So we get poets and then artists pick a poem and then they create art. And we had a two night opening and same, if you wanted to see the art, you chose which poet and artist pair you wanted to come and see. And then that night the poet read their poem and the artist talked about their art and then everyone had to leave for five minutes and then, or uh, all those five had to leave. And then <laughs> the next group came in and, you know, we washed everything down and then the next group came in. So we just did that. We created five people at a time and then did our programming that way. I love that. I, man, I listening to you talk about the community and the artists and sort of that connection between the two and like how as artists we make and create things for the community to receive. And I think for a lot of artists, like that's a part that we don't often talk about is like hearing people receive our work and being like Mm. so edified and so validated, like hearing that. And I just, it just makes me think like, if nothing else comes out of this pandemic, like please have people recognize and acknowledge like how much art means in the community and what a valuable part it is and and why is it not treated like that you know what I yeah mean? absolutely I mean with all these reopenings it was frustrating I mean I I want to be healthy and I want to observe the health but I was thinking like our small art galleries can limit the number of people who come in and out it's very easy for us mm-hmm. to do that and yet we were never allowed to open yeah. and yet you know you can't you can't limit the number of people who walk into a mall. You can't do it. Yeah. Um, yes. Yep. And so those kept opening and, and, uh, but this art, which I agree, like, especially towards the end, people really, they needed more than two options, the bar yeah. and the mall to go to. Yeah. And towards the end, people needed something else to go to. And I've noticed it since we reopened. And again, with pre-purchase tickets and limited numbers, people are coming in and they are still, they stand in front of every piece for minutes, 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 minutes at a time before they move on. They are taking in every color, every brushstroke, every pen line, every collaged piece. They are taking their full hour, just eye to eye, eye to canvas, eye to drawer. I think they're so hungry for this beauty and what the art and the writing does to their soul. I, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen the dedication to an art show like I've seen since we reopened. It's beautiful. It's sad too, because I can see how hungry people are and probably how hungry they've been for a long time. We want to congratulate you on receiving the Mayor Sandstone City Builder Award in recognition of artists and organizations that make Calgary a better place to live through the arts. So what do you see for the future of the Alberta Ready community and what would you like to see? I see us being a more inclusive community. I see the dedication and the work that's going on there already. Without a doubt, people have heard, you know, the cry for this, this need to happen and it is happening. And I see the hard work and the dedication and the genuineness behind it. So I see us continually growing as an arts and literary community to open up space and open up opportunity to make work 
that has not had the uh, space before. So I see that happening and I think it's fantastic and I'm excited for that. And I hope also as we get back out together face to face that we continue to build community and we continue to have dialogue. I really look forward to dialogue again. I had to leave Twitter. It became a really, well, I mean, I think it's always been a really mean place, but you know, the tension was high, the stakes were high. And so the words were barbed and it was like, there was no room for dialogue. It was one way, you know, and it was like, you need to believe in me or you're a fucking idiot. And I'm looking forward to, I mean, as artists and as writers, we have the capacity to speak and speak well. We also, if we're going to build open and inclusive communities, we've also got to listen because if we're going to ask for stories that are not our own, they may be different from our experiences. And so we need to listen. We can't script other stories so that they sound like the stories we want to hear if we're truly going to hear and be a space for other stories. And some of the other people's point of views might be different than ours. And we need to know how to handle that. You know, when suddenly we say we want, you know, an immigrant story, or we want a story from this lens, and then suddenly that lens comes and it's like, oh, but it's saying something that's we don't want to hear. And we need to know how to dialogue and move through that as opposed to shut it down with mm-hmm. harsh words and one-way comments. So I'm hoping that that is also going to be part of our future is a lot of dialogue and not just from the learned few, but from everybody, because I think we all have a stake in a better future. And the only way I think that we can make a better future is if we, if we get back to dialogue, I think we once had it and I look forward to having it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to be able to make a mistake. I want to be able to make a mistake yeah. and yeah. not feel like I can't leave my house after I've made my mistake. Absolutely. I agree 100%. The world we live in is very strange. Yeah. <laughs> Where no, no one wants to listen to anything other than what they believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I and I make mistakes. And that's how, you of know, like I make mistakes. And I want to be able to make mistakes. And I don't want to feel like, you know, that will be the end of my career. A magnifying lens. Where's the room for improvement? Why do we have to be perfect? It's it's impossible. And yet yeah. this this yeah. weird standard has been pressed upon all of us. It's very uh, unnerving. <laughs> yeah, like if I look back to my 25-year-old self, I didn't have the same kind of wisdom and knowledge that I have now. Mm-hmm. And thank God I didn't have to get, you know, like I'm glad that I had people who allowed me to grow and change and fall and be stupid and and have limited ideas and push me to be better. And so that's what I want to continue to do because we're not the same adult, you know, when we enter adulthood, we we are limited in our understandings and we need mentors and we need people to help us get out of our maybe dangerous mindsets. And we need to learn how to, and that can only come through talking with all kinds of people Mm -hmm. and, you know, And so I really hope, I really hope that we use our skills as artists and writers, because being a writer and an artist, part of it is observing and listening too. So I hope that's part of the future as well. I think if we're mindful about the spaces that we're creating and we're really actually making space to hold sort of like these competing conversations of like, you know, people who need to learn how to do better, but also people who are tired of having to take on the labor of explaining how you should do better. Yeah. Yeah. That it's it's possible. I've seen it happen. Not really so much online. 
Um, no. The complicating factor of online spaces is like, there is no room, it seems, for that sort of like dynamism you're talking about because we all grow through different phases. And unfortunately, what goes online is like a static representation, right? So it's like if you yeah. dig up stuff from 10 years ago, like people don't even care. <laughs> they won't even look at the date stamps. They'll just be like, you've been like this forever and you will continue mm -hmm. to be like this. You know what I mean? And that's really, I think um, people like inherently like rebel at that. A little bit because they're like well if you're gonna paint me with that brush like why should i try to be better and that's so unfortunate because there's always space to be better there's always an opportunity yeah. to be better right and we should be encouraging each other to, to yeah to that. and i, I kind of i mean i think that's my philosophy has always been you just assume that someone will be better and you know that they can be and that's why you make these opportunities of people working together because sometimes it's not even through dialogue it's just through even parallel work and yeah. parallel projects you know yep. and then it's the quiet oh oh you know it's just the you know just being getting outside of your comfort zone and, and being somewhere else and being somewhere new and taking challenges and failing so I love being in person with people I know it's a scary time and people are afraid of that but I do hope eventually that um, by being in person and engaging in meaningful art making and that these conversations will happen in the, you know, just happen because of like engaging in meaningful work together. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Do you think that once the pandemic is over and we reopen, you might go back to your short-lived stint as a teenage bus driver at any point? <laughs> <laughs> You know what? If 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 there is a need, <laughs> I can't go back to being teenage. Oh, but that's no. true. Yeah, yeah. If I if there's ever a need for me to get, take control of a bus again, I will do it. So wait, just to verify, how old were you when this happened? I was 14. I had never even driven a car before. Oh my god! And it was just so that your bus driver could get a coffee. I don't know what you know, but talk about being a good kid. <laughs> You know, cause like I wasn't that surly. I mean, I was, I guess that teenager. So I paid my, and went to the back of the bus. Cause that's where all the teenagers go. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, no, no. Come sit up front with me. So like a good, it's like, oh, the bus driver tells me to come sit up front. I better come sit up front. Yeah. The respect for the authority figure. Yeah. And then he just said, ever driven a bus before? And I'm like, no. Today's he goes, well, day. Just sit. Yeah. And then, you know, and I think he's joking. <laughs> he's like, just sit and give it a try. So I'm like, yeah, you're hilarious. Yeah, I drove. I picked up people. People got on and paid their fare. Oh, my God. <laughs> Other people didn't. Other people were like, are you training? And I'm like, no, I'm 14. And then people were like, yeah, I'll wait for the next bus. Lisa, if you tell people you're 14, you'll never be a bus driver. You can't yeah, I know. tell I'll them. Never yeah. I'll never get a boyfriend. I'll never get a boyfriend. You'll never get I'll your never... own bus. <laughs> yeah, and then he was mad at me because I put him behind schedule. Unbelievable. Oh, figure. Looking yeah. Not a lot of people um, believe that really happened, but it really happened. That is the wildest. I mean, I could see it. I, I think stranger <laughs> things have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he had just had a, you know, he had a bit of a break or he just, <laughs> just given like hung up. Over? I don't he was hung over. <laughs> he just gave up on his job and his life. And he's like, she looks old enough. She can reach the pedal. <laughs> God. I love that. So if you were to look at the trajectory of your creative career so far and give it a theme, what would it be? Well, I have one that's not really sexy, but I think it's apt. 
I kind of see it as like a patchwork quilt. Mm-hmm. Oh. So I've done a lot of like bright, colorful, because nothing, I haven't had a, like a long career. It's been a bunch of bursts of really great colors. You know, I was a, a teacher for a really short period of time. I worked at writers in the school for a really short time. I, I ran the Writers Guild teen program for a really short period of time, only seven and a half years into um, Loft 112. So I sort of see it as this colorful patchwork quilt that's kind of getting big enough to, you know, cloak people and make them warm and feel safe and loved. That's how you make a career. You look back at it all and you go, look at this. Look at what I made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's my theme. A quilt. (laughs) Granny's quilt. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of colors. And like lots. No, the other part I was thinking about too is, you know, because I, a lot of it is recycled ideas, you know, like the box stories gallery. I saw something similar at the Brooklyn library. And so, you know, it's like, using a scrap from here and stitching it together and, you know, collaborating with uh, Alberta printmakers. So, you know, a little bit of something we shared. So it's kind of reused and scraps and ideas and then stitching it all together and creating something beautiful and useful <laughs> and useful too. <laughs> that's like the, I think that's the definition of what a creative person is. Like when Gio and I started this podcast, which I was like, uh, I'm a writer, not a podcaster. What the hell? Mm-hmm. But we were talking about kind of like what makes a creative person. And I really do think it's this ability to sort of like think laterally and you pick out these little parts of things that interest you and you figure out where they connect. You're like, there has to be a join somewhere. There has to be like an A tab and a B tab and I'm going to put them together and see what comes out. My ideas are more like a sun, like a burst. And so it has this central idea and then like this, these rays that just radiate around. I'm like, what do they touch? They all just come back to the central part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just this burst. And I like that burst. And it's like, oh, we'll make it happen. Yes. It'll oh. keep burning. <laughs> I love that. So Lisa, before we let you go, we just want you to plug away. Tell people where they can find you online, uh, what they can see, what they can donate $5 to, whatever. <laughs> it's your time. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, June is new forum month, our magazine, we have issue number three. Mm-hmm. So go to um, Instagram, it's new forum AB, short for Alberta, new forum at new forum AB. You can follow all the exquisite cadaver or exquisite corpse projects. We're putting them up. There's all, um, and you can order a magazine through loft112.org. We have a page there. You can find Loft 112 on Instagram and Facebook and Stonehouse Publishing on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And we also have a website where you can purchase books. Uh, We have fabulous books. There's a deal. You get a slight discount, plus you get a handwritten card and a tote bag. And that's stonehousepublishing.ca. And uh, if you're in Calgary, they're at loft112.org. There is also a ticket link to come and see um, our projects that we have right now. Um, you can book Tuesday to Friday from four to seven or Saturday and Sunday from noon till four. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lisa. I can't say how much I appreciate this. I'm so glad that uh, you responded to me when (laughs) Sophie just sort of like looped us into the same email thread. This has just been lovely. Thank you so much. This was a really nice way to spend just over an hour. It was great. pretty professional. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They were great questions. You're easy to talk to. You seem like good people. (laughs) We're all right. 
Yeah, yeah, I like we're both like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed your past podcasts and thank you. Oh, for yeah. Listening. All right, I shall leave you and uh, thanks again. Thanks Goodbye. so much. I'll be in touch about that tour. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Have a bye. great night. lovely she's so nice i know i can't believe how much stuff she's done and then she's like yeah you know i haven't done that much i'm like are you kidding me like she had her hands in everything and i mean such a contributor to the the community in calgary the arts community right and seeing those points that kind of overlap yeah it's one of those things where you look at i don't know if this is the right word but like a connector where she will like create something and then facilitate people to put their art into the world to connect with a larger community mm-hmm. and it's always those ones who are like i'm not doing the work you know like they're yeah. the, the artists are doing the work and it's like well you're also like but, helping them to do the work yeah, <laughs> you're creating like platforms opportunities like even mm-hmm. that idea of like a poetry reading where you and five other people go in and speak to a poet like those are the kind of events that create a new generation of writers and artists Mm-hmm. right because it's like you get to I don't communicate you get to interface with somebody who's an inspiration and it's kind of like what you and I do on the podcast which is like breaking down how people do things how they have access to their art how they have access to different opportunities so that if somebody's listening and wants to do something similar they know how to move through those channels as well yeah like, I, it's humanizing the creative experience and realizing yes we say it a hundred times, but no one really knows what they're doing. It's just no. a matter of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's starting. not happening in a vacuum. You know what I mean? And yeah. making those community connections can be so crucial, especially when you're like building stuff, when you see a need and you're like, mm-hmm. nothing is here. I want to make something. You know what I mean? Then you get your friends together. You, it's amazing what you can do. We're all in this again. <laughs> is that a high school musical? I never I know so. what it is. Oh my God. I anyway. Think I've never seen it, but yeah. Neither have I, but thanks for listening to me. And to me. And if you have any comments, concerns, reviews, ratings, etc. Or, oh, you wanna... or if you want to start an exquisite corpse story with us, send us <laughs> the first three sentences of your story at listen to me at gmail.com or message us on the socials at listen to me pod. Don't listen to Renee because it's actually listen to me podcast at gmail.com. Oh, yeah. I never fucking get it right. Nobody emails us anyway. (laughs) So it has been this entire episode that we have not spoken about Patreon. It's true. We are releasing episodes early. We're sharing bonus episodes and uh, we are posting blog posts that Renee's writing. Uh, so you can find that at patreon.com slash listen to me pod. We will already have posted like our latest work in progress episode. And there was a bonus blog that I posted with a sh- original short story that our patrons get exclusive access to. And also the pride month, our June blog for pride month is about a bunch of things, but I'm mostly talking about sort of like pride and sex positivity and sort of pushing back against like purity culture. So Get it has it. a lot of links in it. <laughs> <laughs> like chain link because of kink? Like... like, yeah, well, I am talking about the fucking annual pride discourse that will never die, which is people being like, there should be no kink at pride. And listen, I'm not into leather daddies or puppy play and i still think there should be kink at pride i will fucking die on that hill 
I miss that they so when I lived in Toronto, they used to have there was one day in the fall and it was like pride, but it was specifically like a sex positive street festival. Yeah. And so like everyone would come out and wear their gear, or whatever, yep. and it would be like a, a safe space for everybody. Yeah. They got rid of it and the next year replaced it with like family pride. What the so fuck? So it was like like the literal opposite. And everyone yeah. was like, what the actual fuck? Yeah. Like that it's, makes me so mad. I can't even, I put it in the blog. I put it in the blog. I'm putting it in the blog. <laughs> and as per usual, the music in this episode is graciously provided by audionautics.com. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.